If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 John this morning. Uh, 1 John, that's where we're going to spend our time uh, this morning. Um, if you're less familiar with the pages of Scripture, there's 66 books in your Bible. The last one is the book of Revelation. Um, if you go to the book of the Revelation and you go left four books, you'll see Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and then 1 John. Uh, 1 John's a little book, so hopefully that will help you find it. But we're going to be in the book of 1 John, and we're going to be in chapter 4 um, this morning. Since uh, Easter, we've been walking through a series that we've called Seven Choices. There's a subtitle that we've called Life-Changing Decisions. Um, what we're trying to do since Easter is to help you uh, take the steps that you need to take in your spiritual journeys, in your spiritual life, so that you can become the man or the woman that God ultimately wants you to be. And we believe that these seven things that we've been talking about, we're on part five today, but the seven things that we're going to talk about, if you'll apply them to your life, will lead to life transformation. Um, the foundation verse that we've been walking through was found in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, wise choices will watch over you, understanding will keep you safe. So wise choices will watch over you, understanding will keep you safe. And the entire context of Proverbs chapter 2 is really hinged on this verse that we just read. The entire context is about molding and shaping your life um, into something that's consistently in tune with God. So essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to take our lives and align our lives with God's word. That's what we're shooting for. Hopefully, that's what you're chasing after. And hopefully, if we apply these seven things to our life, that's exactly what will happen. Really, what I told you on week one, maybe even week two, is that we're trying to help you go from good intentions to good decisions. You know, sometimes that's the hardest uh, threshold to cross. Um, we all have good intentions. Sometimes I have good intentions of communicating something to my wife, but when I fail to do that, it can get me in trouble, right? So we're trying to move good intentions into good decisions. And maybe for some of you, you started the year 2023 with a very good intention of getting you, your family, back in church. And you know, just like I do, it doesn't take, what, three, four, six weeks. And before you know it, you're already back in the same old habits you were in before the year started. Um, good intentions don't get us anywhere. But if we can transfer those good intentions into good decisions, that's when we'll start to see life change taking place. I found this quote by A.W. Tozer. I thought I'd explain this phenomenally. It says this, The driver on the highway is safe not when he knows how to read the signs, but when he obeys them. And isn't that true in our lives as well? It's not about necessarily what we know. It's about what we actually do. It's about applying the Word of God to our life and choosing to obey God in every aspect of our lives. So in week one, we talked about the importance of taking our next step. If you remember, this was on the heels of Easter. So we said for some of you, getting baptism on the right side of your salvation is the next step that you need to take. In other words, maybe you were baptized as a child, but you didn't make the decision to follow Jesus until later in life. And it's time now, what baptism is, is a public symbol that, that tells the world that you're now a follower of Jesus. See, I don't wear this wedding ring until after my wedding. Um, so just like that, baptism is the same way. We, we get baptized after salvation to show the world that we're now a follower of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, that's the next step you need to take. Maybe for some of you, you know that God has called you to exist and to live in biblical community. So we encourage you to find a life group and to get connected to that life group. 
Maybe for some of you, it's an act of service. You need to start serving the life of the church. You've been gifted by God with special gifts that he can use for the sake of the church and the furtherance and advancement of the gospel. And maybe for you, that's the next step you need to take. So we challenge you to consider those next steps in your life. And then in week two, we talked about the importance of thriving, what it means to abide in Christ and what it means to thrive and to flourish spiritually. And then week three, Jesse Welliver talked to us um, about the importance of generosity. And as Matt just shared with us, not only uh, did you take a step that week, we gave you an opportunity to give uh, to our student ministry and to, our, uh, to all of our ministries, really, Camp 323 and students that are going to get an opportunity for some kids, students, they can't afford to go or are unable to go or whatever the case may be. And we wanted our church to have enough resources to support those who wanted to be there. And even if there was a man or a woman or a student that doesn't know Jesus, that wants to come but their family can't send them, we wanted to be able to say yes to them. And we challenged you to give $5,000. And as Matt mentioned a moment ago, you didn't only exceed that, like you tripled that. And you gave fifteen. So thank you first for being an incredibly generous church. And then in week four, Chris Reynolds last week was here. How, how did y'all like Chris? Did y'all like him? You can't say no. <laughs> you have to say yeah. So Chris is uh, over pastor wellness in the state of Georgia. And one of his jobs is just to take care of pastors, just to love on them, to counsel them, to share with them, to pray for them. And Chris came and uh, filled in last week, and he did a great job talking about the importance of connecting not only to Christ, that's where it's ultimately most important, but also to each other. And today, part five, we're going to talk about the importance of making the decision, making the choice to share God's love. That's what we're talking about today. That if we would choose today to share the love of God with other people, I believe that can lead us to a life-changing uh, decision. We're going to be in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 today. And before we read the scriptures, I want you to know that Jesus, or John, is writing to believers. And really, what he's writing about is he's telling them, in the here and now, this is how you're supposed to live your life. Okay, so this is very practical, this book is for us. John's telling them, in the here and now, this is how you're to live. And the easy bridge to cross for us is to read that and to know how we are to live our lives as well. And the most important lesson that John is teaching um, his congregation, his audience back then, is a lesson that I think applies significantly to our lives as well. He's teaching them the importance of love and the importance of obedience. And I think the same thing is true for us. If we can learn to choose to love and choose to obey, it will transform the way that we do Life. So we're going to be in 1 John 4, and we're going to read in verse 7. I'm going to read this text in its entirety today, and then i got three simple, very simple points for you. And then after I get done with those three simple points, I'm going to give you three simple, practical ways that you can apply this to your life. So that's where we're headed this morning. It says this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Can you say that with me this morning? God is love. It's important. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, pay attention, we also ought to love one another. 
what an important, uh, not word of encouragement, but what an, an important command. Man, if you've been loved by God, then you ought also to love one another. See, what I've learned in life is that sharing the love of God does not always come natural to me. And maybe you've learned this in your life as well, that sometimes it's really hard to, to share the love of God with other people. See, it's easy for you and I to love people who love us back. But it's really difficult for us to love people who aren't going to love us back. And I believe that this isn't excluding anyone. That when John says, if you've been loved by God, you also ought to love one another, he's saying you also ought to love those who are going to love you back, but you should also love those who will not love you back as well. And John does this by saying, really, I'm give, uh, by, by really making, he wants us to make the choice of loving all people. That's essentially what John is saying. Maybe you're like me and you think things like, you know what, I don't want to waste my time. So if someone's not going to love me back, there's no reason for me to put the effort into loving them. Because I know what I'm going to get in return. And, and maybe you've said that. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my energy. I don't want to waste my emotions. Why get involved in that if I know it's just going to hurt me? Why get involved in that if I know that it's not going to end well for me? So what we do is we choose not to share God's love out of fear of what might happen to you and I. But here, John's not giving us much of a choice. He says, if you want to walk in obedience to Jesus, you will share the love of God and you will share it with all people. John's saying you'll share it with those people who are going to like you and you're going to share it with those people who won't. You're going to share it with those neighbors who cut their grass and you're going to share it with those neighbors who don't cut their grass, you know, the ones that annoy you. You're going to share it with a coworker who you love to hang around and you're going to share the love of God with a coworker who you would rather not ever be around. Like he says, you're going to share the love of God with anyone if you want to obey me. He's, going to, he's saying, you're going to share the love of God with your friends, but you're also going to share the love of God with your enemies. That's where it gets really hard for people like me and maybe for people like you. But in full transparency this morning, I want you to know that this is a lesson that God is still teaching me. In other words, God is still plowing away at my own heart, showing me how to love people that I know are not going to respond in love back to me. How does he do this? How does he keep plowing my heart? Well, he keeps me in close proximity to difficult people. Do you ever feel like he's doing that to you as well? I mean, as soon as you got one issue resolved with a difficult person, there's another difficult person that rises to the top. And it's like anytime people are in your life, you're going to be challenged by difficult personalities. That's just the way the world operates. But he does this. He keeps us in proximity to people who are difficult. Maybe he keeps us in proximity to people who don't deserve our love. And he does this so that he can show us and shape us to be more like his son. If we're honest, if you and I, if we're repentant, he will use these moments with difficult people to truly help us and change us into the likeness of Christ. So I would argue this morning that the most important decision, okay, I'm saying that as a matter of fact, quite frankly, the most important decision of the seven decisions that we are talking about, the most important decision that you and I could make that would, leave, that would lead to life transformation is to tell others about the love of God. Okay, you hear that? That's, that's the uh, weight that I want to put on today. 
It's the most important decision. If you want your life to be changed, if you want to obey Jesus, if you want to walk with him and talk with him, if you want your line to exist in harmony and in tune with him, the most important decision that you can make today is to be willing to share the love of God with all people. But in order for us to do that, we really need to understand the word love from God's vantage point. I mean, let's just be honest, the world that we live in has misconstrued the word love. Many of us, we have applied the word love the wrong way. Uh, We don't have a full understanding of what the word love actually means. So in order for us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, we have to understand what love is from God's perspective, okay? And this text does a terrific job at helping us understand that. It says this in verse 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So the very first thing that we need to understand this morning is that God is love. When we think about the word love and we see it from God's perspective, when we see it from God's vantage point, it begins foundationally with understanding that God himself is love. I would say that this is actually the foundational um, thing that we need to understand, even to understand the entire passage. Everything builds on this truth that God is love. Now take note, what John did not say is that love is God. John did not say that love defines who God is. What John says is that God is love. Therefore, if God is love, then God defines what love is. Does that make sense to you? So if, we need to, if we're going to have a proper understanding of what love is, it begins by first knowing who God is. That's why he says if you know God, then you'll know love because he is love. So love is the essence, in other words, of who God is. It's an attribute of him. It's the core aspect um, of his character. Now get this. If God is love, and according to John, God is love, right? And if you embrace that and you believe that, if God is love, then listen, everything God does is loving. Now let's be honest, church family. That will make us, if we're honest, take a step back. I told my wife, we have some friends, longtime friends. Um, The wife in the relationship was 20 weeks pregnant. They went to their normal checkup on Friday, and they learned that the baby had no heartbeat, and they lost their child. The doctor came in to tell them that their child was no longer living. That friend's a pastor. He's preaching today on Mother's Day while suffering the loss of a child. And I wrote him this morning and communicated with him this morning. Man, one thing, I don't know if we'll encourage your heart or not. But to know that God is love will remind us that even in the good and also in the bad, that we know that everything he does is loving. And I know that this doesn't seem loving. I know that sometimes we want to shake our fists in the face of God and say, how dare you do this to me? But somehow, some way, the mystery of Christ is that if he's love and that is who he is, then even somehow in the midst of that, he's loving. He responds by saying, you know what? I believe my family, myself, and my church will be more shaped by this than I ever care to admit. And that's true. Because God's doing this because he loves people. And I don't understand why that always happens. I'm not going to pretend like I understand it. I don't think we're meant to understand all of it. But what I do know 
is there's no arguing with the character of God, that he's love. And if he is indeed love, then everything that he does is loving. And when we embrace that reality, it starts to allow us to look at things that happen in our life that we consider bad to actually be loving acts of God that shape us and mold us into his image or shapes others around us into his image as well. Very hard pill to swallow. I understand. But everything he does is loving. So the first thing that we have to understand is that God is love. The second thing we have to understand this morning is not only is God is love, but God loves us. Now listen to this in verse 10. It says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, listen, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's one thing to understand the reality that God is love. It's an entirely different thing to understand where that love is actually applied. And God is saying, not only am I love, that's the essence of who I am, but I apply that love to, yes, you. I apply that love to, yes, even me. It blows your mind to think about this, to think that God loves you. It's a humbling reality. When there's nothing lovable about me, when there's nothing lovable about you, God directed his love towards us. In fact, I would say that this is the greatest expression of God's love, and in the entire Bible is what he says right here, and sent his son. The greatest expression of the love of God in the entire word is the gift of his son. In other words, what God is saying is, I'm not only going to tell you who I am, I'm going to prove to you that this is who I am by, by putting action to my word. I am love, and I love you, and I love you so much that I'm going to demonstrate my love in this, that even while you're still a sinner, Christ came, and the Bible says he died. This is what we can take away from this reality. God did not send Jesus as a reward to the obedient. He sent Jesus as a ransom for the defiant. You understand that, church family? It will change the way you see the entire biblical narrative if you can grasp your grip around this. That God did not send Jesus as a reward to people who were good. God did not send Jesus as a reward for people who had great behaviors or or met the moral code. No, God sent Jesus to die in the place of defiant human beings, people who deliberately rebelled against his plan. And that is very good news for me, and it's very good news for you, especially if you understand the wickedness of your own heart. But as long as we continue to live in this space of thinking that we're good people, we'll never have a a pure appreciation of the love of God for us. Because he didn't come as a reward for the obedient. He came as a ransom for the defiant. God's love is not responsive. He did not love us because we were so in love with him. He loved us even when we chose to rebel against him. That's the beauty of God's love. What do you mean, Trey? God didn't choose to start loving you because you got your act together. And for some of us, we come to church and we think that thought that I have to get myself together before I can come to Christ. And Jesus is like, no, that would be like saying that it's a reward for my obedience. No, he doesn't want you to get your act together. He wants you to come to him just like you are. And then when the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life, he will start to fix the act that you can't fix anyway. That's what he does. He transforms us. 
It's what a loving God does. Listen to the way Ephesians chapter 1 says it. Now, again, I'm using the New Living Translation. Some of you, you actually use that for your daily Bible reading. Um, this is not the time or the place to talk about that. There are some things that it kind of misconstrues. There's other places it really allows the plane to land better. And this is one of those places in the New Living Translations where I think if you read it, you'll appreciate what God is trying to say. So that's why I want to use this text today. It says this in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. Even before he made the world, talking about God, God loved us. And he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Christ Jesus. That is so good news. In other words, Jesus knew we would be defiant. Jesus knew before he ever created the world that we would rebel. And Jesus already had a plan in place for our rebellion. And that plan that he had in place was to send himself, to clothe himself in human flesh and to come to live the life that we were supposed to live. But because we wouldn't, he would then go to die the death that was ours to die because it was us who sinned. Great news. And I love how this text ends. It says, this is what he wanted to do. He willingly wanted to do this. And it gave him great pleasure to do so. Man, that's good. I, I love how Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 3 says this too. He says, I loved you, or I love you, don't say past tense, it says I love you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? This is God saying to his people that I will love you forever. I will love you always. There's nothing that you can do for me to stop loving you. I want you to think about that. Think about the gravity that for some of you, that when you think about that and you embrace it, and you, you start to chew on it and internalize it a little bit, it's gonna, it will change you. To think the thought that there is nothing that you can do for God just to say, all right, I'm done with you. I, I stopped loving you today. Nothing. Sure, he tells us in Romans that he will turn us over to our sin if we continue in that sin. But that doesn't mean that he quit loving us. I mean, he turned us over to what we were pursuing and chasing anyway. There's nothing that you can do for God just to decide that I'm going to stop loving you. Why? Because God is love. That's who he is. He can't do anything that he is not. He will always love you. So if there's one thing that you take away from this morning, if there's one thing, if you shut me off after this, that's fine. If there's one thing that you take away from this morning, it's this. God loves you. I didn't say your spouse. He does love them too. He loves you. And you came in here today, some of you, with baggage. You came in here today, some of you, knowing the wickedness of your own heart. You came in here today, some of you, just depressed and depleted and ready to give up. And you need to hear this, that God loves you. So first, God is love. Second, God loves us. And then third, we love others. Look what he says in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us... Again, we also ought to love one another. If you've received the love of God, and this is true that he loves us, then it only makes sense that we would share that love with other people. In other words, this is what we do with the love that we've received from God. What do we do with the love we've received from God? Well, we love others in the same way that he has loved us. Listen to this. When God's love hits you, God's love will start changing you. 
Some, some of you, the reason your life hasn't been transformed or the reason your life hasn't been changed is because the love of God hasn't sunk in yet. You haven't opened yourself up to receive the, the love that God offers. You haven't opened yourself up to believe that this isn't a fairy tale, that, that this God really does love you immensely. And he's really demonstrated that and shown that and proven that in a plethora, a really a plurality of ways, the greatest of which is sending his own son. But when you encounter and you embrace the love of God, it begins to transform who you are. Do you know why this fascinates me? It fascinates me because God uses sincere yet imperfect people to spread the message of his love. I mean, that's not how I would choose to do it. Maybe that's not how you would choose to do it either. If I wanted to spread the message of love, I would want to keep that as pure as possible. But God says, no, the way that I'm going to spread the message of love is I'm going to invite impure, imperfect people into the picture so that when these impure, imperfect people begin to love others the way that I have first loved them, then the world will see how loving I am. Sounds genius, but I would have never thought of it. That's the way that God works. John says it in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. How will they know that you're a disciple of Jesus? If you have love for one another doesn't mean the people that you like it also means the people you don't like doesn't mean the people that you know they get you it means the people that don't get you as well it means we love other people in fact this is what i would call the divine order of love in scripture first god is love second god loves us and third god calls us to share that love with other people so what we learn from this is that we can only give to others what we have first received ourselves. If we are not a recipient of the love of God, then we have nothing to give in regards to love to other people. We can only give what we have first received. So let me say it like this. We release what we have received. This is not an if and or but statement. It's a matter of fact. If you have received the love of God, then you will be giving and sharing the love of God with other people. If you have received it, you will be releasing it. For many of us, we know God loves us. We do. Some of you, you walked in here today and you've heard this since you were a toddler in church. You've sung songs about this. But we find it very difficult to live out that truth before a watching world. Maybe it's the fear of rejection. Maybe it's the fear of acceptance. Maybe the fear of approval. But we find it difficult to live out that love before watching world. Look at what verse 11 says. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What does that mean? That word ought, if you translate it properly, it means this is what you were designed to do. If you want to step into your purpose today, if you want to live the way that you were designed, start loving other people the way that God has first Love you. Some of you, you know that Kayla and I, we returned from a trip to Israel. We were in Israel for about 10 or 11 days, and we just got back from there on Thursday night, still struggling a little bit from jet lag. Um, but it was an incredible trip. And by the way, if you've never been, I would love for you to go with me next year. Uh, I think it's going to be an incredible group that goes, and I would love for you to go. Uh, I think everybody needs to at least go once to see the places that Jesus has walked. It changes the way you read Scripture completely. But you might be familiar with the story of the prodigal son. 
Okay, you've heard this in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's found in Luke 15. There's really two prodigal sons in the story, right? But I want to read this story to you today. But I want you to know that what's on the table of the story is that Jesus was just asked, why do you go sit with sinners? Why do you go eat and participate and hang out at the table with sinners? That was the question that Jesus was answering. And as he answers it, he gave three parables. Okay, three separate parables. This is the third of those parables. And this is what it says in John 15, verse 11, or Luke 15, verse 11. It says this. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. At this point in the story, you can almost hear the people that Jesus is talking to gasp. Like, what? Why? Because this is completely unorthodox. What, what this son just said is, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I would already have the inheritance that belongs to me. You know what Jews would have done in that uh, particular context? They would have taken their son out back. You know what I mean? You don't talk to your daddy that way in their culture. All right, so gasp number one is that the son would have the audacity to, to implement a death wish on his own father. or The son would have the audacity to implement a death wish on his own father and give his inheritance. And then look what the father does. It says, and he divided his property between them. <laughs> Shock number two. Shock number two is that the dad actually goes through with the plan and he gives the son his inheritance. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered. That means there he wasted his property in what kind of living? In reckless living, in wild living. This is shock number three. The crowd would gasp. He liquidated all of his assets because back then they would, his inheritance would have been cattle and things like that. He went and he sold that, liquidated all of his assets, and then he took that money, and the Bible says he went and he wasted it away on living a wild life. Drinking, sexual activity, those aren't myths. Those are, that's reality of the story. Here's what you need to understand. Is in Jewish culture, there was a ceremony called the kazatza. Kazatza is something that we all need to understand to really kind of understand what's going on here in this story. See, Jewish culture was an honor or shame culture. In other words, if you lived your life in a way that brought honor to the community, then we would honor you. If you lived your life in a way that would shame the community, then we would shame you. Kazatza, by definition, means this, to severe, to sever, sorry, to sever. It means to... To, to separate. It means, um, the, the best way to say it is to cut off. So if you had someone in your life and you wanted to kazatsa them, basically you're cutting them off. They no longer belong to you. There's complete separation. And this story is painting the picture of what this actually looks like. A boy leaves home. He lives among the Gentiles. He wastes away his wealth. He wastes away his life. And if he were to try to come home, if you understand this story, the elders in the community would meet the kid the boy at the city gate. See, the city gate was the only way in the city, and the city gate was the only way out of the city. So the elders, they would come to the city gate, and they would take pots, and they would bash these pots on the ground and shatter them into pieces. And the symbolism there of what they are saying is our relationship with you is forever broken. 
You were cut off from us. You are not allowed back into our community. You've went and you've squandered your wealth. You went and you brought shame on us. We've drawn the line in the sand. You no longer belong to us. You belong to the Gentiles. Now watch how this story ends. Verse 14, and when he had spent everything that he had, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. You understand the significance of this? Shock number four. The whole audience is gasping again. Why? Because Jews looked at pigs as unclean animals. And what you've spent the entirety of your life trying to avoid, now you're placing yourself as a servant to them. And then he says, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Not only are you a servant to them, you've become one of them. And then he says, and no one gave him anything. They gave the pigs food, but they wouldn't give him food. His own community now has cut him off, and now even the people he went and rebelled to have also cut him off. And they said, you're not even worthy of the food that we give the pigs. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I sit here and I perish in hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, he's plotting a plan in his mind. Some commentators think this was repentance. Other people don't think this was repentance at all. It was just another act for him, manipulative act for him to get back into the, the crew. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And watch what he says. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Do you see what he's saying there? Treat me as one of your hired servants. In other words, if I can do something to prove my love to you, then maybe you'll accept me again. You ever been there? You ever worked tirelessly for the approval of someone else? To be accepted by someone else? thinking maybe if I just do this, they'll take me in, they'll love and appreciate me for who I am. Same plan he puts into practice. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father had compassion on him. And his father ran. Shock number five. He broke Jewish tradition. Middle Eastern men wore robes, and they did not run. Why? Because if they were to run, they'd have to pull up their robe. And to show their legs was to shame themselves. They didn't want to show their legs. If you see my legs or chicken legs, you won't want to see mine either. Like, I'd shame myself. That's how these guys were. They kept their robes down. They didn't want to shame themselves. That's what he's doing. And it says that he ran and embraced his son and kissed him. The question on the table is why did the father run? Why did this father run? He's running because the village is coming out. When they see the son start to come back home, the elders are headed to the, to the, to the gates. And the elders have their pots in their hand. And as the son begins to approach, the elders smash the pots. And they say, we're drawing a line. In the sand, you don't belong to this community anymore. So why did the father run? The father ran to get ahead of the broken pots. The father ran to say, listen, 
You are shamed by this community, but I'm going to take shame on myself so you don't have to taste an ounce of it. You are going to be punished by this community, but I'm going to suffer the punishment for you so you don't have to suffer any punishment at all. Listen, friends, it's not about pots. It's about Jesus on a cross. And when you and I should have been shamed by the community of God because of the sin that we've committed, Jesus got ahead by the cross. And he said, listen, Trey, listen, ma'am, listen, sir, I love you so much that even if they don't and even if they cut you off, I'm going to usher and invite you back in because you belong to me. He hugged us and he kissed us and he gives us rings and he gives us robes and he crowns us. And he says, you belong to me. And just like the prodigal, you can come back into the community regardless of the broken pots because you have a space, a place here. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I have done for you. And ma'am, sir, the same love that Jesus or that father gave his son is the same love that Jesus gives you and I today if you'll just embrace him. If you'll just let him usher you back in. But when you taste this kind of love, there's three responses. One, the first thing you do, and I want to remember how Jeremy says, says see them, okay? We're going we're gonna to talk about that in a second. We have to see people who don't know Jesus. We have to see people that are longing for acceptance and approval. We have to see people that are wasting their lives away. We have to see people that are living without hope in the world. And after we see them, the second thing that we will do is we serve them. Physical needs, spiritual needs. We say, whatever need you have, I want to serve that need. The way that we're going to say it around here is we're not going to say serve. We're actually going to say send. That means we take action and we go and we start to meet the needs that they have, namely the deepest need that they have. They're looking to fill this hole in their heart with everything under the sun when only Jesus can fill it. So we send our people out so that they might know Jesus. And the last thing we do is we share with them. We share with them that the only answer to all of their questions and all of their struggles and all of their frustrations and all of their uncertainties is found in Jesus Christ, who got ahead 